Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Okay, so I'm, I am I can't remember if I've ever shared this story with you, Cass, or maybe even our listeners on the show. So if I have, please just bear with me here for a second as I repeat myself. But I I love this story so much. Um, When I was in grad school, I overheard this, what I felt like was a rather comical exchange in the library. And I happened to be standing very nearby when a female student who looked to be like on the younger side of the student body, you know, she was probably like 18, maybe she was 19. She was definitely an undergrad. And she walked up and approached one of the reference librarians to ask for some assistance finding resources on vintage fashion because she needed it for design inspiration. And this is, you know, this is common. But she said that she wasn't finding anything because the period that she was looking for was so long ago. And of course, the reference librarian was like, I'm happy to help. What decade are you looking for? And the student said, I'm looking for the 90s. And the reference librarian is like, okay, we have tons of things from the 1890s. We actually have fashion magazines exactly from that era. We have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a wealth of information. And this, it was really funny because the student just kind of like is staring at her Blankly and and not really <laughs> saying anything. And then she just says, no, the 1990s. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and this is the part where I, like, fell out, like, on the inside to myself. Because when this happened, I think it was probably 2008. So the 90s had been less than a decade previous. And and also for me, I was a little bit horrified that she thought that this was so long ago because I was in high school and college in the 90s. So my point in telling you this story as we go into this episode is whether it be 10, 20, or now 30 years later, the 1990s have remained this very much beloved period of fashion history. Oh, for sure. Even if it's a fashion history that, of course, is of our time, which, you know, (laughs) a lot of people have, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was, of course, just a preteen and a teenager in the 90s. Um, But this was definitely my formative years in terms of my relationship to dress and how I kind of thought about the dress 
body. And we've all heard me tell time and time again how influential Clueless was on me. But this is also the period that I discovered fashion magazines, which I feel like is so many people's entry point to fashion. And it was in middle school and I started reading specifically W Magazine, Hmm. which back then, and they still do to this day, but they're not the same as they were in the 90s. In the 90s, they had the most wonderful and whimsical fashion spreads that just transported me into another world. It was such an exciting time for fashion. There's so much to love about the 1990s. This was the era of the supermodel, the glamazons, the waves. This was the era of grunge and deconstruction, minimalism, so, so much more. Mm -hmm. And today we are so pleased to be joined to discuss all of the above with our friend and one of my mentors actually from grad school, Colleen Hill. Colleen is a curator of costume and accessories at the Museum FIT and her book Fashion in the 90s is the exhibition catalog for a forthcoming exhibition of the same name at the museum at FIT. Colleen, we are so thrilled to welcome you to the show today. Welcome to Dress. Colleen, welcome to Dressed. Um, This is very much overdue. Some of our fashion historian listeners will probably know that you and I are very dear friends, but um, we've been trying to get you on forever and ever, so I'm so excited to talk to you today about your new project. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So um, some time ago, you shared with me, I was like, what what are you working on now? And you said that your new project was on fashion in the 90s, and I was like, oh, like, that's hella ambitious. <laughs> and the reason I say this is, is 90s fashion is a very tricky period of time to tackle. It's not all that long ago. It's not like it's forgotten. And you and I were actually both teenagers in the 90s. I think I'm a little bit older than you. So I was early 90s. And you were kind of late 90s. But we lived these clothes firsthand. So it's not like we don't know anything about them. And that's really interesting in and of itself because it's a bit of a rarity oftentimes that as fashion historians, we're working on periods where we actually wore those fashions. So... The reason I'm saying it's tricky is because the 90s, the styles and fashion is exceedingly resistant to categorization. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. That was one of the biggest challenges with this project. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you have this wonderful quote kind of like early on in the book, and, and you're quoting a fashion journalist, Marianne Hume, who wrote in Harper's Bazaar in the December 1999 issue. You know, it's like we're like right on the edge of like, going to the, you know, next millennium. And she said, quote, we have lurched from modern to retro, from glitz to glamour, from Puritan to pretty, from military to minimal, only to max out at the finale with an opulent flourish of beating and a rash of irony. Designer logos a go-go on everything from chewing gum to inner tubes. And I was just like, yep, that's pretty much it. (laughs) And it's a lot. (laughs) So, you know, I'm curious how you went about beginning to think about the 90s and how you went about uniting all of these disparate themes. You know, how did you structure the book and the upcoming exhibition? 
Sure. Well, I actually started the project by rereading some of my favorite books that cover 1990s fashion in a really meaningful way. So I went back to Caroline Evans' book, Fashion at the Edge. I really love Rebecca Arnold's Fashion, Desire, and Anxiety. And uh, Terry Agins wrote a really great book called The End of Fashion. Mm-hmm. And they were all written either late in the 1990s or just at the turn of the millennium. So actually the task of those authors, which was analyzing 1990s fashion when it had truly just occurred, was a much bigger challenge than even what I undertook. Um, So as I was reading, I would jot down notes, usually about designers or trends that came up a lot or that I remembered or maybe that I didn't remember. And I also made a key list of words for myself, which I hadn't really ever done before. But I love that. I'm going to adopt that. I'm going to steal that idea from you. (laughs) It was something I got from my PhD work, to be honest. So I would just come up with, you know, minimalism or grunge, or sometimes it was a more obscure word, but something that would come up in the way that fashion editors were writing about fashion. And of course, the book corresponds to an exhibition at the museum at FIT. So I'm always thinking practically. I have to think about what makes sense for a book, but also how I can tie those concepts to something I can cover within an exhibition. Mm -hmm. So using those keywords, I was consistently going through our museum database, um, seeing what we owned, knowing what themes would have to carry over from print to physical space. And I'm someone who tries to curate the majority of my exhibitions using our permanent collections at the museum at FIT. We have about 50,000 pieces, so a lot to choose from. And over time, the themes emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do have a little bit of a disclaimer in the book. I say that this is by no means covering everything in the 90s. And as you mentioned, the big challenge here is that so many of us remember the 90s and we have very specific things that were important to us about 90s fashion. That's not necessarily what you will find in this project, but I do think there are a lot of important themes and hopefully something for everyone. Yes, and, and and we are so excited, and I think maybe we'll chat just a tad more about what's going to be in the exhibition and when it may or may not open <laughs> here at the end of the show. But um, for me, when I think about the 90s, one of the things I think about a lot about, like, the kind of, like, overarching trajectory of my life is that we might be that last generation who grew up without the internet, right? Yes. So I didn't have an email address until I was in college. I had a computer and I I had been working on computers even like in grade school as like part of like school and stuff like that. But the internet wasn't a thing. So my question to you is like, you know, in the 90s, this is the first decade when the internet came into widespread use by the masses. And I'm curious, how did fashion interact with the rise of the internet at this time? Sure. Yeah, that's something that I hadn't thought a lot about prior to this project, because I think what's interesting about the internet is once it becomes a thing, it really becomes a thing and it evolves really quickly. And the ways that fashion intersects with the internet evolve very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was really fun for me to go back and catch some of these early crossovers. And one of my favorite research tidbits was actually from an article written by Bill Cunningham in 1996. And he excitedly 
wrote that a digital camera had been positioned at the back of major fashion runways. And that meant that images from the collections were available for purchase for a small fee immediately after the show. And of course, they could also be emailed around the world, which seems so silly to us now because of course you can do all of those things. Um, But in 1996, it was really exciting because these new fashions were disseminated more quickly than anyone could have really imagined prior to that. I also liked exploring in this exhibition, not necessarily direct overlaps between fashion and the internet, but the way that clothing was kind of inspired by the internet in its aesthetics. And that particularly related to the idea of Y2K. And April, I know you and I both know Y2K very well, but for younger audiences who may not be as familiar with what that meant. (laughs) I was on a dance floor in South Beach. I was still in high school. I was at a friend's (laughs) house, but there was a big celebration when midnight came around and we realized that the world was not, in fact, shutting down. That was the big concern (laughs) was that computers wouldn't roll over into the new millennium. Right. And essentially everything would malfunction. So this was something that people had real anxiety about. I found this whole issue of a psychological journal that was devoted to these anxieties around Y2K. It was a real serious concern. Yeah. Um, So designers were thinking about this, of course, and one of my favorite moments that demonstrated the Y2K effect on fashion was uh, an Alexander McQueen collection for Givenchy, I think it was fall 1999, and he made a variety of clothes that were embellished with motifs that resembled the circuit board, which is actually a really beautiful thing to see in beadwork, for example. And the collection kind of culminated in a molded plastic bodysuit that had a circuit board mo- motif that lit up using LED lights. So it is a little bit of crossover between fashion and tech, but it was more about the idea of the internet affecting the look of fashion. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think one of the things that we're going to keep coming back to again and again and again, as we move forward, some of these like bigger themes is that once the 90s goes one way, it can't help but come back the other way. So I'm hoping we can talk now about minimalism because it is kind of the exact opposite of that kind of like techie, like beautiful embroidery kind of, you know, that's that's a lot, right? So So how are we defining minimalism at this time? And I'm also hoping that you can speak speak a bit to the heritage or sort of legacy of minimalism in the history of American fashion? Sure. Well, what I thought about a lot for this show in general is that, of course, when you're talking about a decade in fashion, it doesn't begin and end in a neat 10-year period. And one of the things I found with minimalism was that it begins really as we think of it now in the late 1980s. And then it kind of takes an interesting trajectory during the 90s. In general, it takes the form of more streamlined and often monochromatic styles. There's a kind of interesting moment in the late 80s moving into the early 90s where you see some overtly opulent materials like sequin fabrics, for example, that are being used with really simple silhouettes. 
And that kind of marks the transition from the opulence of the 80s, which was often seen in fabrics and silhouettes that were really luxurious. Exactly. (laughs) One of my favorites that I found uh, for the exhibition was, for example, a Calvin Klein dress from 1991 that takes the shape of a really simple kind of V-neck t-shirt, but it's made in this really fantastic gold sequin fabric. It's modeled by Cindy Crawford. uh, So you can tell it's one of the best pieces in the show. It's in the book. It's in the book, exactly. Hopefully also in the show. And I think that marks this really great transition. And then as we move forward, you start to see fabrics also become streamlined. So there's a lot of white. I think overarchingly, the idea of white fabric becomes associated with minimalist looks. But there's also a trend around 1993 that was a really fun one to explore for what was known as monastic style, which was a branch of minimalism that relied on lots of long black garments. So things that resembled priest robes or other kind of ecclesiastical styles, basically a really sober look. But in general, it's a look that is pristine in silhouette. Um, And I always go back to Holston, who was a New York designer whose 70s styles were known for the similar purity of line and effortlessness. Um, They didn't rely on any inner structure or sometimes didn't even include things like buttons or zippers or any kind of closure. But what I found really interesting was, of course, now so many important magazines, Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, for example, in the U.S., have been digitized. And so you can do word searches, which is incredibly helpful. Again, this keyword thing. We do it all the time. It's amazing. It's so helpful. (laughs) And if you look up minimalism or minimalist, the weirdest stuff comes up. Not much comes up (laughs) prior to the 1990s, but when it does come up, it is nothing like we think of as 90s minimalist fashion. So it really, as a term, is defined during the 90s. Oh, that's super interesting. Also, too, just like that connection you were talking about, like they were using that term monastic. You mean that 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 like Claire McCardle in the 40s had that was like her breakout hit, you know, the monastic dress, which which basically didn't have a front or a back. And it was just basically unembellished except for a few gathers, you know, at at the shoulder. But it, 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 you know, that whole kind of legacy goes back and back and back and back and back even further. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a great example of something that we could certainly term minimalist in many ways today, but wouldn't have been thought of as such then. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We're going to take a short sponsor break, but when we come back, Colleen and I are going to talk about grunge. Welcome back, everyone. And as promised, we're going to turn our attention to grunge. You know, so Colleen, you know, kind of running concurrently and arguably kind of the flip side of the coin to American minimalism is really grunge. And I was all in. I don't know about you in (laughs) high school. I was all in. Birkenstocks, the plaid flannel shirts, you know, the whole thing. But one of the things I was actually quite delighted to learn from your book was that the use of this term, grunge, as related to popular music, actually predates the 90s by more than a few decades. So would you tell us about this and also its later connection to the Seattle music scene in the 1990s? Sure. Well, I really owe credit 
to Jennifer Lazote for her work on grunge. Uh, she wrote a book that I really love called From Goodwill to Grunge that has what I find to be the best history of grunge style, and that includes the origins of the term. Um, and I'd read that book a number of years ago, but I returned to it when I was researching for this project. And she points out that most histories of grunge mention these specific Northwest bands, usually starting during the late 1980s that became associated with the word. But in her research, she found that it was previously applied to garage bands from the 50s and 60s, also from so the So cool. So cool. <laughs> and I love music. I wish music could have been a bigger part of this project, but there's only so much you can do. So basically during the 1980s, the term grunge was used to describe bands that had a sort of fuzzy and distorted sound. And then of course, the types of clothing that tended to be worn by these bands, of course, the most famous band being Nirvana, had a brief but important impact on high fashion during the 90s. So I think what you and I remember is when it becomes really mass fashion. It was so accessible and attainable and also such a great look for teenagers in general. Yeah, because it was easy. Exactly. And it could be <laughs> really cheap. Um, but it was a blip in high fashion, a really important blip, but a blip nonetheless. Yeah, and, and, and it's really interesting because when I do teach um, American fashion history, as I have in the past, I always talk to the students about, like, what do you think grunge is? And they're always like, oh, it's like Rick Owens or Ricardo Tisci or, like, all this kind of stuff. And then I will literally throw up on PowerPoint, like, pictures of me and my friends in high school next to those kind of, like, high fashion runway looks. And they're like, wait, that's not the same thing. And I'm like, <laughs> exactly. So exactly. <laughs> before we get into this kind of transition of grunge in how, how it gets co-opted into high fashion, for you, what are some of the elements of grunge style? Sure. Well, I like this question because what's actually most essential to grunge style, in my opinion, is layering. Mm -hmm. I think that was what was essential to getting the right look more so than any singular piece of clothing. And that layering aspect, again, has its roots in the Pacific Northwest because the weather can change really quickly. So layering is a practical way to stay comfortable during the day. And I also think that explains the significance of oversized fashion to grunge because if you're layering, your sweater needs to be big to make its way over all these other layers. So it kind of has a little sidebar, but something I found interesting that happened just recently, I was communicating with a collector based here in New York who told me that he has some pieces from Mark Jacobs' grunge collection, which I'm sure we'll speak about. And he said they're actually quite hard to find on the vintage market because as individual pieces, they're not very distinctive. It's when they're all put together that the look really comes together. And I thought that's exactly it. Um, so there are certain things, you know, there's, of course, the layering, there's the combat boots that are worn with things, the flannel shirts, the oversized sweaters, things that look like they've been worn. Um, but in general, it's really that styling of the grunge look that makes it so important. And matching is not a thing. 
No, definitely not. <laughs> and you'll see on the cover of the book, even we have a great um, printed tartan fabric that we wanted to use specifically because it does not match the ensemble worn by the model in the Corinne Day photo on the front. Yeah, yeah. You know, and another interesting um, observation you made in the book is this um, sort of connection or flow from hippie style into how it connects to both punk and then a little bit later on grunge. So I'm hoping you can elaborate on that for our listeners. Yeah, that was another thing I hadn't thought too much about prior to working on this book, but it was really looking at Anna Sui's Spring 1993 Grunge Collection. Shout out, Anna. I was her intern in grad school. Oh, yes. And I think I've told you she was by far my favorite designer from the 90s, and I still absolutely adore her work. And this collection was so important, and it featured clothes that resembled army fatigues. They were layered over these really brightly striped knits and they had butterfly patches and flowers. So they had that optimism that Anna Sui's work usually has and that I absolutely love. But she also talks about how this these looks were grunge inspired. So it's a verified reference. Mm -hmm. But of course, I still see the 60s all over this look. Um, so that made me think about how military garments were worn by veterans, of course, but were also purchased at army surplus stores to make a transgressive statement, expressing the desire for peace by using these army garments. Uh, and then in the punk era, of course, we see deliberately dilapidated clothing become another means of rejecting mainstream consumerism. And grunge music itself was in part inspired by punk. So there are all these elements elements that work their way into grunge that aren't necessarily overt, but once you see these references, you can really kind of pick them apart. I mean, I say this a lot on the show, like when you start pulling that thread. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, so from this sort of like underground, subcultural, connected to music style, grunge eventually gets co-opted by high fashion, as we just referenced. And, and, and this is actually not infrequent in the history of fashion. You know, it, what high fashion is looking for is that cachet of cool, right? And so if it is part of anti-fashion, what happens is uh, high fashion will be like, oh, that's what all the cool kids are doing. We're going to like take that and bring it into our lexicon as well. So how did this play out in the 90s and specifically in the pages of fashion magazines? And then also you already referenced that now legendary spring 1993 collection um, by Marc Jacobs for Perry Ellis. So I'm hoping you can talk about those two things. The way grunge is shown in high fashion magazines is really interesting because prior to those spring 1993 collections, we mentioned Anna Sui, Mark Jacobs for Perry Ellis, and there is also a really great collection by uh, Christian Francis Roth that references uh, the sonic youth musician Kim Gordon, which I adore. So it's really those three collections that were really important and related specifically to grunge. But otherwise, there's, again, a lot of styling involved in creating these looks. And so one of my favorite 
Hearts is the editorial grunge and glory that was styled by Grace Coddington and photographed by Stephen Mizell for Vogue. And it predates those grunge-influenced runway collections. So Coddington's genius as a style really shines. And you can tell that she understood the look and she mixes high fashion uh, from people like Ralph Lauren, for example. But she's also going to the New York Vintage Boutique Screaming Mimi's and picking up pieces and there's a Nirvana t-shirt involved. So it really shows that she gets the look and she understands the layering and this high-low mix that becomes part of the look when it enters high fashion. Mm -hmm. Mark Jacobs' collection for Perry Ellis was really shocking for people because Perry Ellis was known as this high-end American sportswear brand. Jacobs had been working there for a while very successfully. And he created this collection that, you know, if you bear in mind that these authentic grunge looks were often comprised of thrift store pieces. And suddenly fashion buyers were faced with flannel or flannel looking shirts that cost over a thousand dollars. You know, it was a real affront to high fashion in some ways. And so the collection ultimately did result in Marc Jacobs firing, but I think it made a huge star, even bigger than before. And he was already a star. Yeah. And, and also, I just, I'm sorry to interject, but like this also happened to Yves Saint Laurent when he tried to send street style down the runway. So exactly. There's a real history there. And then of course he too bounced back and created his own label and was very successful. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. 
For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. I think it also says a lot about the legacy of this collection, that it is very desirable for collectors, as I mentioned earlier, but also that it was re-released in 2018, the Grunge Redux collection. So it shows not only that 90s fashion keeps cycling back, not all that long after it left, but also that that particular collection still has a lot of cachet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and one of the things that I just want to point out that happens a lot of times when, you know, high fashion kind of co-ops anti-fashion is it, it likes to like polish it up. It likes to grind down that grittiness or the rough edges and it gives it this kind of like slickness. But at the same time, once again, in our keeping of the theme of going back in the other direction in the 90s, there were a lot of other designers who were actively looking to reverse that process of, of polishing things up and cleaning it up. You know, they were actively destroying and distressing their garments. So I'm hoping we can talk about that. And I just want to say I loved this quote so much. Uh, in the book, you you quote uh, Victor Horsting of Victor and Rolf, who has now, by the way, emerged as one of my very favorite fashion brands over the last probably like five or 10 years or so. And um, uh, Victor says, quote, we want to show that beauty can be found in sad things, not just glitter. So, you know, who were some of the great deconstructionists of the 90s? Because there are more than a few. There are quite a few. And I think... Honestly, if we're talking about deconstruction, we have to go back to the Japanese avant-garde designers of the 1980s because they were really the first to bring these elements of deconstruction into high fashion. Rei Kawakubo of Comme des Garçons, for example, is still really important uh, throughout the 1990s. And what I didn't realize prior to working on this book was that she had a friendly relationship with one of my all-time favorite designers, not only from the 90s, but in general, Martin Margiela. And he was very heavily influenced by her work. And at some point, they actually shared a runway presentation. So it's a really kind of interesting history. But Margiela started started his label in 1988. And what some people might not know, because again, deconstruction is a term that we're really familiar with in fashion now, Bill Cunningham was actually the first to apply the term deconstructivist, uh, which is taken from architecture, to fashion. And he was specifically describing Margiela's work, and that really stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, Margiela and others were creating clothing that appeared to be old or uh, often in the case of Margiela, was old, <laughs> um, could be turn up, uh, torn apart or unfinished or inside out. So really calling attention to the process of fashion in the way that it was deconstructed. And in general, it was just kind of an aesthetic that was based on imperfection. Yeah. And I think this is like so interesting because like, you know, some of our younger listeners probably, will, they, they, they just, they don't see that that became a thing at that point in time, right? Yes. But deconstruction, when it first started happening, or deconstructionism, when it start, first started happening in the 80s and into the 90s, it drew a lot of criticism sometimes from certain segments of the fashion press. 
It did, yes. And we have a really great collection of Comme des Garçons, even going back to the early 80s. And some of the people who donated, like Roberta Smith of the New York Times, for example, like this is a person who got it. This is the type of consumer who would understand why these looks were hundreds of dollars. I mean, they were expensive. And in the case of Margiela, they were often one of a kind. What you saw on the runway, at least, was often one of a kind. So what I like to point out is that in many ways, these deconstructed garments are luxury goods. They're Mm -hmm. not inexpensive solely because they're made from something old or look like they're falling apart, but it's a new way to look at luxury and to challenge the fashion system and the way that they're doing that. Colleen, thank you so much for this. I certainly cannot wait to listen to part two later this week on Thursday. And dress listeners, despite the fact that we do not know yet when the exhibition will open at the museum at FIT, Colleen's book is out now. So if you are a fan of the 90s or from the 90s and still remember to revel in the 90s, (laughs) (laughs) you do not have to wait. It is available at your bookseller of choice. Well, that does it for us today. May you consider the legacy of the 90s in your closet next time you get dressed. And I'm sure this episode was a bit of a trip down memory lane for many of our listeners. (laughs) And you know, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us and DM us some photos of your 90s fashions, um, we would love to hear from you. And also like perhaps with your permission, repost some of your favorite 90s episodes this week. Oh, that would be fun. We should post some of ours too, April. Yeah. I'm sure we can dig out oh, some 90s photos. I've, I've got some good ones. <laughs> <laughs> so you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, or you can also email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And of course, thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you all on Thursday for part two with Colleen Hill. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.